Looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, Jake, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Um, I'm Jake Clopton. I founded Clopton Capital. We are a nationwide commercial real estate finance intermediary. Um, primarily focus on assets somewhere in like the one to $50 million range. Um, we, we, we've been around for about 12 years, so we've done a little bit of everything, a little bit anywhere. Um, and our capital sources are going to be banks, credit unions, life insurance companies, CBS, government agencies, private equity, all this good stuff. Awesome. So you guys kind of do it all. You've got your toes dipped in the, in the major pools, I would say. Uh, Jake, tell us a little about where you're located right now. Uh, we're in Chicago, um, around the Rosemont area. Um, you, you know, <laughs> I think we're, we're still working from home today because, uh, you know, our offices were shut down and hasn't really made sense to go back, but, you know, we're based out of Chicago, Illinois. Okay. Awesome. And tell us how you got started in the, you know, the world of commercial lending. Where did that come from? It's not something you just wake up one day and you're like, I want to do commercial lending. How'd that all happen? No, no, it's not. Um, and it's actually probably a little bit different story than I think most people have. Um, so before I got into commercial lending and, uh, real estate, I used to trade, uh, interbank hedging product futures. Um, so for years I traded three month live war futures and fed funds and treasuries and all this good stuff. Um, you know, we used to trade in like 23 hour day markets. So it was, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. Um, around the 2008, nine ish area, right. We all know what happened where interest rates went to absolutely zero. Um, and you know, I, at the time, you know, to, to trade and make money you really need volatility, you know, so the contracts moving around and it just really wasn't there. Um, and, there was obviously a capital and liquidity crisis, right? And so my idea was to shift from trading to, you know, um, finding a way to help borrowers access capital. Um, I, I, I didn't really have the full concept, right? I mean, first we were doing some business loans, stuff like that, but it really morphed into real estate um, very quickly. Um, so I think, you know, I just really liked real estate in general and now it's turned into, you know, a, a company we've had for 12 years. And not only do we do we do financing, um, but I'm also a partner in, in a commercial property insurance company. And then we have a portfolio of multifamily uh, properties ourselves around Chicago. Well, I, I'm glad to see that you survived some of the commodity stuff. That's really interesting. Uh, it, I actually, Yeah, I, man. Yeah. You, you know what? You can only work from 1 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day until you kind of get burned out. <laughs> So I came out of industry, most of our listeners know, but you don't, uh, and got handed the responsibility of buying uh, natural gas on the open market. Yeah, so it was a really interesting experience. And it was back probably 15 or so years, a little bit of a guess there, when uh, natural gas hit like $12 per million BTUs, and it normally trades from like two to four, it almost got me fired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so interesting. But you also mentioned LIBOR. That's a term that uh, translates to multifamily. Yep. Um, and, but it, it's not, uh, I guess, for the more sophisticated syndicators and so on, it's talked about 
but talk a little bit about it. How does it apply? What does it mean? And how does it affect us? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, most people don't even know what LIBOR is, honestly. They just know it's like an interest rate. Um, so LIBOR is, you know, it's it's the rate that, like major money center banks charge each other to lend each other money. Um, and, and a lot of the, the problem with LIBOR and a lot of countries was because the banks are basically setting the rate themselves and it's subject to a lot of manipulation. Um, LIBOR pricing is coming every day and it's basically just the, this company in the UK would call around and ask what LIBOR was, right? So you can see what could happen, right? Um, so LIBOR is really an index rate at this point. Um, and, and, you know, commercial real estate loans are priced as a spread over an index, right? So you just get the index plus the spread and you get your coupon. Um, so today, you know, the vast majority of, you know, fixed rate loans and a lot of like real estate pricing is based on LIBOR because there's a very healthy hedging market, right? You can go into the Euro dollars future market, you can go into swap markets, you know, LIBOR swaps and all that stuff. Um, so there's a whole, whole ecosystem built around LIBOR. Um, it's personally, I think it's going to be really difficult to phase it out. Um, there's just, and, and it's not because... It shouldn't be, but it's because of alternatives, right? Because you have SOFR and, you know, that's that that's an alternative that has kind of popped up. But if you did some research, you'd see that SOFR has its own, you know, inefficiencies and problems. Um, it has, uh, you know, um, historically some kind of gotten out of whack a couple of times based on air bank liquidity. So if SOFR does have problems as well. And, and I, I think also one of the big problems in this, SOFR seems to be the, the major contender, right? If you go and you look at the futures market, right, for SOFR and kind of the secondary market, it, the liquidity just isn't there. And maybe it's because people aren't using it yet. yet. But I, I think it's going to be difficult to, for a lot of banks to use that as an index going forward until, until it really evolves. Um, so we'll see, right? I mean, what, when is LIBOR supposed to phase out? Like 23 or something like that? Right. That's um, what I heard. Yeah, it's coming up. Um, it's going to be interesting. Um, whatever happens, somebody's going to learn how to make a lot of money flipping right. over those, those rates if they can figure it out. So, you know, so, um, it's inefficient is a good way to put it. So. Okay. And a lot of times we hear, you know, the 10 year treasury, the, the LIBOR, we, we hear those get thrown around a lot and a lot of uh, operators aren't really identifying what those are. They're just looking at direct rates. So difference between uh, the U S treasury, the 10 year treasury versus the LIBOR, when is each individual used and are they correlated at all? Um, they're not really super correlated. It, de it depends on what you're talking about, right? So LIBOR is, uh, it's a corporate rate, right? So when, you know, when you talk about LIBOR, you're talking more about like corporate credit. You're talking about treasuries, you're talking about government credit. And primarily when I'm pricing, you know, a, a loan that has like a LIBOR base to it, it's usually a very short-term LIBOR, right? Like 30-day LIBOR, something like that. And it's usually like a bridge loan or something like that, right? Like a multifamily value-add deal, and I'm going to price that L plus 250 or something, right? And the L being the 30-day LIBOR. You know, the, the LIBOR primarily going to move pretty similar to around where the Fed funds rate is, right? Um, it's a little more fluid. It, it'll change a little bit more often. But, you know, if, if you wanted to figure out where 30-day LIBOR is going to go, the Fed funds rate is a pretty good proxy. Um, as far as, you know, like pricing off of treasuries and stuff like that, that is primarily for like long-term fixed rate deals, right? So pricing of the five-year treasury or the 10-year, right? Something with a lot more duration attached to it um, versus, you know, like short-term LIBOR. Awesome. And you were, so 
looking on your website, you guys also supply debt and equity for commercial loans. Do you yeah. want to touch on for the audience, the difference between debt and equity? It is kind of obvious, but there are some smaller operators on here that aren't familiar with the difference between the two. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so pr pretty much any, anybody can access debt, right? But I mean, not everybody is going to be able to access, you know, the kind of equity that we can do, um, primarily because it, it's joint venture equity, right? And, and sometimes it sits in a GP position, but most of the times it's an LP. And, you know, when, when you're doing joint venture equity, you know, I, I do get calls about this kind of often, like guys like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm buying my first property and I want to get a joint, but that's not, that's not who it's for, right? I mean, it's for a guy that's, you know, got a background and, you know, r really kind of can present almost an, an investment prospectus based on here's what we've done before, here's how it turned out, here's our returns, here's our next deal, right? And, you know, something they've that- They've got the track record, like, they've got the assets on Right, they've that track record, right. Um, some of the other, the other challenge I see with some people trying to access JV equity is that, you know, you just need that critical mass, right? So like probably like the lowest dollar amount of LP equity slug um, I see that's kind of fishing in the market is probably gonna be somewhere around like, like two, three million bucks. Um, I, maybe you can find somebody smaller, but I feel like the returns we're going to ask for are astronomical, right? Because there's, there's just not a lot of players in that space. Um, so, you know, maybe two, three million bucks worth of LP. So, you know, a, a capitalization somewhere around 10 million total and up is really where it makes sense to go to look for, you know, like small funds of JV equity, right? Small to middle market funds. You know, anything below that, I primarily see capitalized by private investor, right? And so a guy's going, ah, oh, it's country club money, friends and family money, stuff like that. Um, the, the other equity I'll touch on is preferred equity, which at this point doesn't even feel like equity. It just really feels more like debt that's written into the operating agreement. Um, you know, because there's just a flat coupon, there's no upside. And, and most of the pref equity I'm seeing today is capping out somewhere around like 90% of total cost, maybe a little bit higher, right? Um, but that JV equity is going to do like 90% of the equity piece, right? Um, so it, it's, a, it's a lot higher and it's just a, a totally different animal. So your company uh right now you guys certainly are helping out on the debt side sounds yep. like you're helping out on the equity side uh, what's the track record relative to how many deals uh, amount of money give us some sense of uh experience level for you guys and where where have you been where are you going as a company sure um so we've been around for 12 years, right? The, the volume is just, you know, steadily increased. We're, you know, we're doing about a couple hundred million a year uh, as of now. Um, the debt equity split, um, you know, it, it changes around, but there's a lot more debt to do and there's a lot less qualified JV equity deals out there. So we'll end up doing somewhere around like between 20 to 30 million bucks of JV equity a year. Um, sometimes that's more, right? I mean, we'll, sometimes we'll do like a $15 million slug and that takes a big chunk of it, but you know, we're, we're in the small to middle market space, right? So, you know, typically deals that are anywhere up to like 25 million bucks. Um, and, and a lot of that is going to be, you know, as far as equity check sizes, you know, two to five, 10, something, somewhere in that space. Right. Um, but, but I, I think that's a space that we can serve really well. Um, because there's, you know, there, there's not a lot of transparency into the capital markets that space. And people come and go pretty often, and you know, there's, there, 
I, I think we bring a lot of value as an intermediary and, and consistently staying up with the uh, the capital partners and you know who they are and the building frame available to them. So th- this next question is kind of like a uh, two-part question. So first, obviously, being a mortgage broker, you guys you do FHA, Freddie, Fannie, CMBS. You use banks, credit unions on the debt side. Totally understand that. That's great. And then on the equity side, where is this equity that you're pulling? Is it family offices? Is it insurance money? Uh, what kind of private equity is this capital that you're able to deploy? Yeah, sure. I, I told you Dante asked great questions. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's a good question. And my thesis on who, who's an appropriate JV equity partner who we like to market to um, is probably different from like other people's. Um, so first of all, on the debt, yes, you're absolutely right. Those are going to be our capital sources. We do agency, CMBS, um, you know, all the capital sources you name, right? Um, on, on the JV equity side, um, I primarily stick to small to middle market funds that are raised around a strategy that need to deploy that capital into projects, right? Um, you get a lot more of what I like to call velocity of money moving out the door and a lot more certainty of getting it done. Um, my, my own personal preference, I, I like to kind of stay away from family offices. Um, I think you only have to get dual tracked and then left at the closing table, um, mm. <laughs> you know, so many times <laughs> before, yeah. you know, you know, it, it, like, it, so the, the funds, you know, they don't seem to have like the schizophrenia, like family offices do. Right. Um, you know, a lot of family officer contacts say, Hey, yeah, we're really interested in real estate. Um, and then they go and decide to buy a, uh, you know, a, a portfolio of ATM machines instead. Yeah. Okay. Did, did just see that recently. One of my buddies. Right. right yeah. yeah. Um, so, right. So, you know, we, when you, we, when you're dealing with, you know, like investor capital that's raised around a strategy, you know, and you're dealing with basically an advisor or money manager, their job is to get that money out the door to find deals, to move it. And it's, it's, you know, it's focused capital. And that's the type of capital that we like to, you know, to deal with and right. You, you get a lot more certainty to close. I mean, think about it, you know, you've got a developer that's going to have hard money on the line. I don't want to get the guy all the way down the line, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, just Can't because the, yeah. the, the patriarch or matriarch of the family office decided that, you know, I don't know. They took a bath in the market this week and they don't think it's a good time. So. Right. Now, how are you able to, with this private equity sector, so not the debt sector, the private equity, how are you able to build a relationship with these individuals or these companies, or these firms that you're able to, uh, I guess, say, help them deploy their capital or equity into these projects for other investors? Right, right. I mean, it's not too dissimilar from, you know, the debt side as far as like, you know, what the nature of our, our relationship with them, right? Mm. Um, we, we like to keep a pretty high like hit ratio um, around like the deals that we'll bring them and show them. Um, so we, you know, I, I know some intermediaries out there just paper the entire market, right? That, that's not really us. I mean, you know, usually when I'm when I bring a deal in and I'm talking about it, I already know it's going to go to XYZ guy and they have the highest, you know, probability of doing it. Um, you, you know, sometimes we'll go outside of that and we'll create a market, you know, around a deal that, you know, maybe I don't know who exactly sent it to you, but I, I, you know, I've got that feeling that there's good economics to it and it makes sense and somebody would do it. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, as far as the relationship with our capital providers, um, you know, it, it's about, you know, understanding kind of like what their strategy is and then just bringing them the right type of stuff that they're looking for. And so just kind of set the stage for the listeners here for us. 
uh, JV versus syndication. So syndication, it's usually many individuals that were raising capital from uh, high net worth individuals versus the JV structure. Maybe it is a family office, a pension fund or private equity where we just have one or two larger groups come in and bring that equity to the table where we don't have to go through the full syndication route. It, my Jacob or Jake, excuse me. My question for you is, do you guys do anything on the LP side for syndication with equity or you, do you prefer to just stay on the JV side? Um, what you right. So I, I think, you know, the distinction between what you're describing is on one side, you're selling investments and securities, securities versus yeah. one side, the other LP is a partnership. Right. Right. That's the major distinctive difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when you're going out and, and don't, I mean, it, it all fits your own personal business model, right? If you're going to go out and you're going to, you know, go to a broker dealer and just sell basically shares of your operating company as common equity, hundred percent go for it, right? They're just, they're just going to be silent. You know, you're going to be paying them whatever you offered, right? Some sort of current pay and, you know, maybe pay some upside. Um, great. That, that model is a little, you know, if, if you're just doing it yourself and, you know, you're doing it one-offs, right? Maybe through like crowdfunding site or something, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's for, for me, optically, it feels a little bit more difficult on the whole certainty of execution side. Um, you know what I mean? You've, you've got to get a whole bunch of people in there and I don't think there's any kind of, you know, guarantees you're getting. Right. right, right. Um, that being said, I do have JV equity guys who in the background, you know, they bring in the, the LP and in the background, they're selling off pieces themselves. It's a similar model, but a little bit different, right? I mean, it's more of the partnership side, but it's just syndicated in the background. Um, I just feel like, you know, with the LP side, you know, you, you're, you're right. The, the partnership side, it does have a little bit more controls attached to it as far as like what the LP agrees to. And, you know, they, they're not driving the car, but they're certainly in the backseat. Um, but I think you get a lot more certainty of close and a better execution, but it depends on what it is, right? Um, I think if you're doing small deals, syndicated all day, probably gets, you know, you only need a million bucks of equity. That's the way to go. Um, because, you know, doing LP below 3 million bucks is just difficult. So I think, I think, I think that one to three, maybe 500 to three space is probably a really good place for syndicated equity. So this multifamily market that we're focused in, uh, in equity money, it's maybe it's becoming more, you know, feels like it's becoming more well-known to me because, you know, that's what I'm into now. Sure. Is it the same on the street and where, which direction is money flowing Are more people looking to put in, you know, always trying to predict the future, right? Uh, is, are the current indicators of the future right now driving money, equity money uh, into these, these real estate markets? Um, yeah, so I, I think I, I've seen more and more groups that, you know, were let's say 10 years ago, focused on debt, moving up the capital stack. And, and I think what a lot of that has to do with is, you know, you just can't like, you know, like 20 years ago, you could probably get really healthy returns, you know, on, on debt. And, and the, you know, that came down, I think debt funds, you know, figured out ways to lever, right? And then, you know, still return that those, you know, double digit returns with their investors. Um, as there's more liquidity out there, right? And there's a ton of liquidity right now. 
And maybe there's not as many projects, you know, to go around and just the, the, the whole market in general is tight, right? I mean, I'm seeing investor capital and, and you know, new funds are entering the market, you know, be more comfortable moving up the capital stack into different uh, products. And, and some of that is JD equity, right? So, you know, some, some of the, a lot of, you know, funds that I'm seeing focus on MESPREF, you know, now I see it MESPREF JV, right? From the same sort of guys, because they're looking for those double digit returns. And I, and I think to, to get those today, you're either going to be, you know, in some sort of unique, extremely distressed scenario, and it can still use 12% money, right? Um, or, you know, you're going to be in, in, the higher cash tax space. And that's, that's your mass profit JV. Awesome. Now, what advice would you give to newer operators that are looking to access some of this capital, but don't have that track record or don't have those assets under management? What advice do you give them to kind of get started and move in the general direction to, you know, build a relationship with someone like yourself? If they're listening to this episode and they say, Hey, you know, uh, Jake's my guy. That's the person I need to, you know, be talking to. What can they do? Sure. And, and- you don't necessarily have to have a track record of using JV equity in the past, right? Um, and, and, you know, you, you can certainly build up your track record, you know, to show it, uh, the, the type of track record you would need. And, and you know, syndicate it you, for your first deals, you know, syndicating that equity through crowdfunding or friends and family or yet, that's a great place to start. Um, you know, and, and I, I think most of the operators that I, that I move from, you know, syndicated equity over a JV have just gotten to the point where, you know, they're too big to syndicate $50,000 equity checks. You know what I mean? Like, they, you know, and they've got too many deals going on. They, they need a larger pool of capital to get there. Um, you know, there, there is a, a little bit of a learning curve going from, you know, syndicated equity to JV, um, primarily because in syndicated, it's 100% you. You put the offering memo out there you figured out the, what the returns were and what your offer was, right? And people came to you and just, just you know, just bid on what you're offering. With JV, it's a little bit different, right? I mean, it's what they're offering, but they're, you know, what, you know, kind of they're, they're requiring as returns for their fund. Um, so it, it, there's a little bit of a learning curve getting over that hump, right? Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the most people that are, you know, kind of in the industry and using syndicated equity, the time to, to jump ship over to like a larger LP is, is just when, you know, it's, it's not an efficient process anymore. Right. And, you know, you like, I, for, for instance, I, I was doing some deals for a guy down in Texas. He's got, he syndicates out equity at like 50,000, hundred thousand bucks a pop. He's like, dude, I just can't do it anymore. There's too much reporting. I've got like yeah. 150 investors. Like how, how yeah. am I going to keep reporting to every one of these guys? We've got, you know, 12 properties now, you know, so I, that's the time to move, right? I mean, when, when it's getting in your way of business development and you're doing more just reporting and maintenance than you are finding deals and stuff like that, I think that's the time to make the jump. Yeah, no, that's great. And again, for the listeners to just kind of sum up what we just spoke about versus the debt and equity is, you know, the debt is the, the first to get paid. That is the, the banks, the credit unions, the uh, government-backed agencies, uh, with a, with a fixed rate of return, they really are, understand what the return is going to be right up front versus the equity side is, again, family office, private equity, maybe even insurance money that it holds an equity position, an ownership position, and has upside potential in that, typically a higher return because there's no guaranteed payout. Um, there is risk involved with that, just to kind of sum that up for the listeners there. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's good. Yeah. And Jake, real quick for you. So something 
not a lot of people talk about and something that I don't think is understood property is MES debt. MES debt is something I do want to touch on a little bit. Is that something you guys do offer? Sure. Yeah, um, we do MES. Um, I think a lot of people are, are interested in MES as a way to lever up, you know, just past a senior mortgage, but not want to give away equity, right? Um, most of the MES, like, like standalone MES requests I see, can usually just be covered by a stretch senior with more efficiency, right? Um, MES is a, is, is a great product for, for, you know, as a standalone for like pretty large deals. Um, you know, the, I think the issue when you get into the small balance space and, and just and just doing a piece of meds on top of whatever it is, you know, like a one or $2 million piece of meds can be pretty pricey in comparison to the other piece of the cap stack you're putting. Together. Real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there just so we don't confuse anyone. Mez debt, explain exactly what it is in black and white and, you know, and how someone can utilize it. Uh, sure. So a standalone piece of meds is a subordinate debt piece that's going to sit behind the senior, uh, the senior mortgage, right? So it's, it, it can be a, a lien right as a second lien right against the property, or you can uh, place it as a lien against, you know, the ownership of the entity that holds title to the property. Um, but effectively it's, a, it's a subordinate piece and we can bring in Mez alongside the senior at like the original closing or theoretically afterwards, right. As in like an additional piece, some Mez lenders are comfortable not having any credit. Some are not. Um, it depends on you know what the project is and how much leverage there is. So for an individual like yourself that is is brokering this debt for someone, where do you go to get MES debt? I mean, do government-backed agencies offer MES? Is it banks? Is it credit unions? Where where can you fund that from? Um, it, it's a high yield piece of capital, so it's primarily going to be you know private credit funds, private debt funds, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. And what type of loans? So that senior debt, that first position, that first lien position. Who are those that allow the MES debt? Does agency allow MES debt or is it when you're with a credit union, they, they allow a second position or when can that come in? Because sure. everyone wants the MES debt. It makes your cash on cash way higher and it makes less you know, uh, equity to the table you have to bring. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, you know, MES, MES works really well in scenarios where you have you know, short-term value creation. Um, and you know, you're doing some sort of value add and then, you know, the, the mess maybe has a three to five year timeline. And by the time it burns off, that mess is going to be 70% of value when it was originally 85 going in. Right. Cause then you can completely get it out. That's how the mess gets paid off. That, that, that's how the high cap check product, you know, in, in today's wor world is false to work. Right. You create the value, you get it out, you know, on a senior loan, you know, for, you know, uh, at around 70, 75, um, the, the lenders that I think are going to be the most comfortable with MES are going to be private, you know, bridge lenders. Um, they're used to it. Some of them do it, you know, and, and they're usually pretty receptive to it. Um, agency debt, anytime you're doing anything with agency debt, it's probably going to be difficult. Um, you know, yes, you can put PREF behind it. it it's just difficult. And, you know, a lot of the problem with, with agency, you know, and people say, hey, well, I've got an 80% agency loan maybe I can get 5% more in MES debt. A lot of times, you know, especially multifamily, the underwriting is just so tight. It doesn't really make sense, right? So that, you, you know- pushing I, I the think, envelope, trying to get as much yeah, leverage as you can. <laughs> you know, there's, there is MES and PREF, you know, that's long-term that you can put behind senior. Um, but for a lot of scenarios, the, the, the underwriting just gets too tight to really do that if you're just trying to push leverage. 
So bookend for me, Mesdet, what would typical terms look like? Uh, interest rates, how long, uh, stuff like that. Just kind of give us a sense of what does is, what is one of those loans look like? Sure. So let's say I've got an apartment building deal with a light value add. We're going to bump rents, you know, with some guy that's owned it forever and he hasn't really paid attention, pay attention right? So typical value add deal. Um, We've got a bridge loan that's going to sit in front of it, let's say somewhere at like 75% of cost, right? And then, you know, I want to bring in MESDEP behind that for the other, you know, for the next 10%. So maybe up to 85% of cost of the total project. And I'm also, you know, and when I say total cost, I'm, inc I'm including acquisition price, fees, CapEx, all this good stuff, right? You know, the MES is primarily going to size to the term of the senior bridge loan, right? So let's say you've got a 36 month initial term. So it's a typical 311 type of deal. My MES is going to have a three-year term on it as well. By that time, you should have been able to execute whatever strategy you had, bump rents, do the light uh, capex, all that stuff, you know, and refinance out that MES debt at the end of the three years. And now you just have a, a one senior deal. Um, primarily the, the MES, depending, you know, it is going to size to whatever the term of the senior is if it's two years or three years five years right because you don't want a senior that's going to roll with med still out there right um pricing it, 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 it varies really depending on you know the size what the asset is you know all stuff i see meds at pricing anywhere from like seven and up right uh just depends on what it is where it is and you know and how big it is awesome yeah no that's great now Jake, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing as far as trends in the economy right now. When, when people are coming to you looking for lending or, or what are you seeing out there in underwriting that's being brought to you? Anything that's raising any red flags? Um, Besides crisis? Yeah, lumber. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, construction's difficult right now, right? So, you know, there was a lot of projects that got stalled because of the pandemic and everything. And then I'm seeing some of those coming back around. Um, and, you know, the ones that were tight then, I, I just don't think are economical now, right? I mean, you've got, you know, input costs that are substantially higher. And a lot of the, you know, the, the uh, underwriting assumptions, right, for rents and all that stuff haven't really changed. So it's just costing more to build the same exact product. Um, some of those deals had a lot of room on them, right, and a lot of meal and bones. So those are still getting done. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just cost to do business is, you know, is definitely a concern. Um, I, I think, you know, that'll get the, the supply chain stuff and that'll get fixed. Um, right. For, for instance, lumber, I was hearing they could just do away with the Canadian tariffs and it would drop by two thirds overnight. I don't know why I haven't done it yet, but okay. Um, you know, as far as, you know, economic trends, you know, for multifamily, as far as like rent growth, um, I think we're just starting to see rent growth really pick up. Um, it, it hasn't yet. So if you look at some of, you know, some of the inflation numbers out there, you know, CPI obviously is very high and a lot of stuff's going up, but rents haven't had a chance to really pop yet. And I, I think you're going to see that over the next 12 months is, you know, pretty good rent growth, right? As you know, obviously things are getting better than the pandemic, but you know, you, you've, you, they just haven't had a chance to pop up. And I think there's a lot of economic forces that are going to start to push up rents. And, and those rent and th that inflation will stick, right? Because it'll be locked in with 12 month lease. Um, you know, other trend, you know, generally speaking, areas where that got hit really hard are starting to come back pretty fast. Um, New York City, for one, California, they're starting to see them come back. 
Uh, you know, Chicago, like I'm in Chicago, right? I mean, it, it, it didn't get hit that hard um, as far as like rent drops and stuff like that. But I don't think Chicago rents were as lofty as they were in New York City. So, um, but, you know, I think we're going to see some growth here too. Um, uh, on the other side, you know, some of the concerns I'm starting to see people have and, you know, I, I think might be a shock to some people is growth and expenses. Um, I think insurance costs are going to go through the roof, especially for a lot of, you know, coastal markets. Um, I, you know, I, I told you guys we do uh, property insurance as well. I was reading a report that the vast majority of floodplains are under risk. Um, and flood insurance alone is supposed to just shoot through the roof. And I, and I think some people are starting to see that. Um, additionally, when hail, you know, in like coastal markets in Texas, Florida. Um, so I think that's something to keep your eye on. I, I don't think people are going to sit around and just auto renew policies. I think they're going to start shopping a lot, um, you know, and then, you know, as far as expenses, you know, real estate taxes, right? I mean, I'm in Chicago. I own property here. I can tell you the taxes in one of my buildings doubled. So it's going to happen. Um, you know, there's a lot of budget deficits out there. And I think most of these municipalities are looking at property owners. Someone's got to pay for all this stimulus money too. Am I right? Uh, I'm not getting any stimmies. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> no, neither are we, but someone's got to pay for it. And it's definitely, yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. I, I got a daughter is about ready to go to college. I'm thinking maybe she gets free college. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, probably by the time uh, she's out, they'll have figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I say that with a complete understanding that uh, we need to have more people earning money than people taking money. And oh, you know, yeah. we don't want to upset that balance. Hey, when you were talking about construction costs, uh, one of the things we didn't ask, are you guys funding new development as we, well as some of the value add? Yeah, we are. Um, actually, construction is like half of our pipeline right now. Um, it traditionally was probably close to like a quarter or a third. Um, but it, it just seems like there's, there's so many construction deals out there. I mean, I mean, look, the, the economy, it came back really fast, right? We, we put an enormous amount there, there. If you look at the M1 money supply, we put more liquidity in the system in two months than we did in five years after the 2008 crisis. Right. Um, so it's out there, it's churning it, and it hasn't even really had a chance yet to fully take effect. And that money out there is trying to do business and trying to push economic growth. I think input costs are, are you know, rose very quickly at the same time, obviously faster than the underlying economics of the properties could. And that's holding back, you know, some, some progress, right? And definitely some development. Um, I mean, if you look at single family homes, right? Um, and we do a lot of SFR development as well. A lot of those guys are mothballing projects, or I'm starting to see guys that are, you know, just trying to sell projects, right? They've got it fully entitled and it's just too expensive for them to, you know, to, uh, to follow through with it. Um, I, I, I do think it'll get figured out, but you know, that, that's definitely, uh, the input costs I think are definitely holding people back. But it's uh, with regard to new development, obviously higher risk. There's a lot of money that has to flow into those projects before a dime is even made. Sure. Uh, are, are you seeing some of those projects being canceled or, you know, I, I would imagine some of these construction costs or having a significant impact? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they definitely are. Um, one of the ways I'm seeing guys try to mitigate it is, is moving towards like different types of build, um, just away from lumber, um, using more concrete or something like that, right? I mean, I think that's that's a, a somewhat of a band-aid, right? But concrete's expensive too, so. 
Um, I, I don't know. It, you know, I, until the, you know, the supply chain gets resolved, um, you know, I think the problem's going to persist. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's def- there's still money chasing deals and there's still money chasing construction deals. Um, it's, it's just got to make sense. Great. I love it. Um, DJ, anything else you have for Jake? You want to head over to the next section of the show? No, I think we're good. And I think uh, Dante in the title for this podcast, we need to work in uh, mezzanine and LIBOR. I don't know if there are too many of our guests that <laughs> would, yeah, would have just, catchy titles like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's just talking about that stuff you really don't hear about too often is kind of what I like. You might not get a lot of video clicks if it's, you know, I was just going to say with that, be like, what <laughs> we will get quality clicks. Yeah, that, that. Definite quality true. clicks. Uh, so Jake, uh, certainly some great insight on those topics as we get into our, our curious cues here and find out a little bit more about yourself. Uh, that was some really good stuff. And again, not things we talk about every day. Um, and some great tools that uh, we need to uh, make sure that we're well aware of, know when to use them, when to apply them, uh, and uh, some really good stuff. Always learning, always learning. Uh, All right, Jake, so we're going to hit our curious cues, some questions we throw at each of our guests on the show. Question number one is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Um, You know, this guy Dante runs a great uh, podcast that I like (laughs) a lot with his buddy DJ. So yeah, there you go. There we go. Awesome. And uh, favorite book you enjoy reading? That's actually our first one. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite book? Um, I, I like the Freakonomics books. Um, I think it's cool. You know, they a lot of different points of view, ways of looking at things and, and solving various problems. So I, you know, I, I, I would say the Freakonomics books. Okay. Awesome biggest hurdle in your real estate business you've had to overcome uh the re- okay good question um there was a uh, there was a point in time where we had um i did the traditional kind of like loan origination model where i had a lot of people working under me um as mm. loan originators um i i'm probably not the best human resources person out there <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I think it, you know, and, and I, my, I, I kind of changed the whole structure of what we do because I was, I was like, listen, I, I got to focus on doing deals and finding capital and connecting that with borrowers. And I'm starting to do more, you know, human resources and I can even do of that. And so, you know, I, I really changed the, the model around. So we, we kind of got rid of like, uh, not got rid of, but moved away from the sales guys in, in like those types of positions. And I built out more of an administrative back end of, you know, just support staff, you know, and underwriters and stuff uh, for, you know, for us. And then I, I think that model works a lot better. It, it was, it, you know, it, it definitely was a transition um, and it was difficult, but I think it worked out really well. Man. Awesome. I love it. Favorite non-real estate related hobby. So what do you like doing in your free time? Uh, I don't get a lot of free time. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a two-year-old. <laughs> There's your hobby right there. there you go. Yeah. Awesome. I can tell and, you what they like doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give someone that's, you know, looking to get started in this business? Um, the best advice I could give anybody to start any business candidly is just pick up the phone and start making calls. Yeah. That's all I did. I, you know, to start this whole business, I just started calling people 
um, you know, and, and connecting the dots, right? I, I think, you know, the vast majority of businesses are just one actually, you know, stop putting pen on paper and actually just start making phone calls and do it. And then, you know, pattern recognition, right? I mean, connecting the dots and, you know, uh, figuring out, you know, a consistent way to, to make money out of what you're doing. Yeah, I like it. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can someone get in contact with you if they're looking to touch base with you? Uh, I'm exceptionally easy to find. Um, website, caller direct line. You know, if you guys put my contact information out there, you can email me directly. I'm around anytime, so I do. Um, LinkedIn, you know, I'm all over there. So yeah, anyway. Uh, what's the website, Jake, for our listeners? Uh, CloptonCapital.com. C-L-O-P-T-O-N. That's right. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time coming on the show. And we uh, hope to chat with you soon. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.